Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Today is another presumably lovely Sunday morning. Michael, how have you been? I have been tolerably well, Gary. I've been enjoying the sunshine the last couple of days. You know me, I like my sun and my, my blue skies. It's a lovely May day. There are a couple of things to go through today. Michael has become very irate at some of the claims <laughs> from Alcohol Action Ireland, who are acting uh. as Alcohol Action Ireland always do. And we want to discuss the HSC plans to, uh, well, not plans, they simply suggested that meal deals should be illegal. Uh, We might touch on a a little piece I wrote on the Institute for Strategic Dialogue and a training day they gave to the Houses of the Oireachtas recently on fighting fake news, Michael. Oh God, fake news, boo hiss. Not to tell anyone to do their jobs, but were I giving a presentation on fighting fake news and misinformation, I would make sure all of my figures were correct before giving the presentation. Says Gary as he tells people how to do their job. <laughs> so I got, I got an email from a listener there a while ago, and they were basically saying, look, you guys complain about media constantly. But, they say, actually they said both of us, Michael, are in media, so you're now in media. I'm in media, cool. I know. Soon you may even be a journalist, and then you'll bear that mark of shame forever. Oh, the mark of Cain. But basically they were quite happy with my work. So they said, I was a good journalist, and why are all of these other journalists terrible? Now, while I would <laughs> love that to be the case... I'm going to submit that I am merely an adequate journalist, and there are much better journalists than me in this country. Oh, I think you're good. You're only young. You'll get better. Thanks, Michael. It's it's what I always wanted, become an investigative journalist in Ireland. <laughs> yeah, that's what you dreamed of when you were a little boy. But it did get me thinking about the question, um, and it's something I, I, I've thought about before. And I kind of have an idea of it, but I never really tried to, to systemise it and put it into words. Not about me in particular, but the question of, why are some journalists good? Or in this case, I think we can substitute good for trustworthy. And why are other journalists not? And ultimately, I think the difference there is this, and I think it's gotten much worse than it used to be. If you look at older journalists, if you look at journalists in, actually a lot of time, the tabloids, this is less true of them. But I think the fundamental reason that some journalists are uh, trustworthy and others aren't is that there are lots of journalists who are moral. They have strong moral leanings. They have a strong sense of what is right and wrong and have basically no ethics. And there are other journalists who have a strong sense of ethics. And those tend to be trustworthy from what I've seen. So I think the problem is basically you've got a load of very moral people who don't keep feel constrained by the traditional ethical standards of the field. So you may, for instance, if you have a particular view on an issue and you interview someone, Michael, presuming that you have the only tape copy of their conversation, twist their words. Because if they say that's not what they said, well... No one else has a copy and no one else can prove that you're lying. Unless, of course, someone leaks that copy to Gript and then it becomes an issue for you. So I think that is the general thing. There are lots of very moral people, very poor ethics. I think I think there's a truth to that. And I think a couple of things. I, I, I'll agree with you and then I'll throw in another pos- slightly more prosaic possibility. One, I think, yes, uh, very moral people for whom when you tell the story, if we, and I don't, mean this in it will sound like i'm making kind of a high high level critique of it but i'm not when they tell the story for them what's important is that the the real truth of the story the essential truth is what they communicate in the story and if sometimes that means that say some color or tone or detail of the story is omitted in the same way as a great novel will communicate a fundamental truth without actually being a description of something that happened in the in the so-called real world. That fiction, in a sense, is a higher representation of a deep truth 
than maybe the serialization our docu of our documentary of a war or a political practice might be. So there's a higher truth. And I think for highly moral, engaged, political, younger journalists, what's for them very important is that the, the truth, the higher truth is served. I think that's a very dangerous way to look at it. And I think it goes back, to, I, I, I've mentioned before, having a conversation with uh, an older American journalist who's, and I don't think he was unique in observing this. He may not have been original in observing it, but sometime, I think he said in the early 90s, he noticed that in the United States, more and more people were journalists and fewer and fewer people were describing themselves as reporters. And he had grown up as a reporter. And, you know, it was very high for him. It was really, you know, the Hollywood notion that of these guys with the hats and the fast patter and going on, getting the facts, getting the facts and that sense of being a reporter. And that the literally, if you're looking at the word to report, they were reporting. It was reportage. A journalist is somebody who opines, who considers, who understands, who interprets and then explicates. And therefore, he's more interested in, again, as I say, the higher truth. Now, on the other side, uh, something that our late friend and the founder of the Edmund Burke Institute, Richard Miller, used to say was a problem in Irish journalism, and this is going back a long time, was that as the number of journalists employed in the newspapers declined because of the pressure of print journalism and others, it meant that it was becoming rarer and rarer and more difficult for a journalist to get into a position on a paper, to settle into it, and then to become genuinely expert. So they tend to stay not very long into something. Or if they, somebody might go from the economics desk to the legal desk, from the legal desk to whatever, you know, and they, they don't necessarily know that much about it. They might be trying, they might work hard, but they don't actually know that much about it. And very often, these are things that take years, really, to get into the rhythm of something, to, to understand how the, the police force works or how the courts work. Certainly, if you're talking about economics, about how, I, how the economy works or how business works. So the, the, the way that newspapers in Ireland exist and the, their business model means that it's actually difficult for journalists to become genuinely expert. And if you're not an expert and you don't really get it, then you, you kind of fall back on, shall we say, the more artistic, higher critical element. So you, you don't really understand the details of the thing. So you, you try and find what is the higher truth in it and you just you tell that story because you don't really understand what you're talking about. And there's always going to be an element of that in journalism, even in areas you are expert in. Like I have written stories in which on legal matters in which I consulted with actively serving legal professionals who were very informed and what they told me has still been wrong. But there can be things like that. Mistakes will happen. But I think a lot of what you're seeing is not a lack of understanding in an area. A lot of time it's just a lack of care about an area. And then other times it is deliberately uh, constructed to push a particular view or to make one side look better or worse. Yeah, you you, you, you tell one side of the story. You don't think... You're closer to this than I am chronologically, so you can tell me if there's any if there's anything to this. My sense of the people that I know in or knew in the past who were in the business and what I see today is, I would say in the past, a lot of people who are working in the papers, you had either people who had a particular expertise in an area and were hired on that basis, maybe from a business or an economics point of view or from an arts point of view and understanding of the theatre, whatever. And then you had people who were who started life as reporters maybe 
in the local papers, the regional papers, maybe did a bit in the tabloids that they wrote for journal, and eventually they got in to the the big time. Um, even if you're going to you're setting up the idea that you wanted to be a journalist, you wanted to write in the papers, you might have had a degree in history and English or something like that. My sense is that increasingly you have people going to journalism from journalism. They go to journalist schools or they do postgraduate degrees in journalism. And that would then beg the question, well, what kind of education are people getting in the schools of journalism? My sense is that that's from what I hear, and you have been there, so maybe you can confirm or deny this, that the schools of journalism tend to have a pretty monovocal ideological position. In Ireland, yeah. It, it, it's DCU is one of the worst. Uh, it's It produces graduates of a very particular sort. But yeah, there has definitely been an impact as journalism turns from basically a trade skill to something that requires a degree or a master's, which is bizarre because journalism pays like shit. And it used to have a certain degree of prestige, but even most of that is gone now. Also, Twitter has really destroyed the profession. The groups that have been most damaged by Twitter have been academics and journalists, because both of those groups thrived on having a distance between them and the general populace, and having you know, what they said to each other publicly very constrained. Listen, I throw something else into the pot, maybe this is a bit more abstruse and maybe it's nothing to do with it. I'd also say that we're we're looking now at the flowering of something that went on all through the 20th century at, shall we say, at the epistemological level that it, 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 you have from the Frankfurt School on and all that crew and then the postmodernists, there is a fundamental suspicion of the very notion of the idea of truth, a notion of, of the idea of impartial, that impartiality, that somebody can be genuinely disinterested that actually this is just a, a pose, it's a, it's a fake. And what it is really is a, is a, it's a front for somebody who wants to actually maintain the status quo, defend whatever it's white privilege or the patriarchy. So, so that you have people like Herbert Marcuse, that very famous essay uh, on, uh, in, was it? Oh God, my memory, Gary, intolerance, something, intolerance, tolerance. So he talks basically saying that, you know, free speech, that we should not tolerate free speech for those in power, that free speech is something which should be kept for the alienated, for the oppressed, for the othered. And that, in fact, the, the, the liberal, 19th century liberal notion of free speech is, in fact, simply a bourgeois defense of privilege, because what hap- actually happens is we use free speech to maintain and to maintain the oppression of the alienated. I actually agree with the people who say that we should be intolerant of intolerance. The problem, where we differ, Michael, and I think this is uh, an important point. Yeah. They think that you should preemptively stop people from talking on the assumption that it will lead to later things. I think you should wait until someone tries to stop someone else from talking and then strip them of their rights. Uh, Yeah, I, you know, as I've said before in the show, Michael, my favourite law is the old English law with the head of a wolf. (laughs) If you act in a fashion that shows that you do not have respect for those laws and rights, they should be taken from you. And at the point these people are going to step in to stop other people for something they may do in the future, that's when I think you can step in and stop them. And then you discover you're on the re- you're on very much on the shitty end of the stick there because I can't remember who it said who said it was was it Primo Levi or Orwell or somebody somebody worthy anyway. The, the worst thing about being an, an outlaw is that you are no longer protected by the law. 
But I do think that that, that whole Marcusean thing is that is a big part of it because they don't see themselves up. And I think we saw that in Ireland in the last number of years in various hot-button issues in the cultural wars that there were lots of journalists who really did not think that it was their job to be impartial or disinterested, that they were campaigners, and that was okay. I mean, I mean look at the, the New York Times when it came to the issue of Trump, explicitly came out and said, we are not interested in the business of simply reporting this is a moment of crisis, this is a terrible moment of threat, and we have to abandon that. I suppose to, to move on from that, what was meant to be a very brief point, the HSE on uh, banning meal deals. Now, this suggestion came from uh, one of the HSE's staff, the, the HSE's clinical lead in obesity, uh, Dr. Donal O'Shea. And he went on the Pat Kenny show and he said meal deals should be illegal. And it's it's a particular in- it's of particular interest to me now, Michael, because I am in the middle of a diet and a big uh, f- you know, fitness kick. So I have been, you know, counting calories and watching what I eat. Actually, in many ways, Michael, you are you are to blame for this current thing. How so? Because of my little event. Mm-hmm. Your your little event convinced me that perhaps I should pay attention to my health in a way I have not historically. So, Michael, let no one say that your life has had no value or meaning because you, <laughs> by gracefully dashing yourself amongst the rocks, will serve as a warning to others. My life is a warning. Okay, fine. I mean, it's better than some people get. Absolutely, yeah. It's it's not nothing. So, but here's the thing. When you're calorie counting and you're doing all of that stuff, in general, you know what you should not be eating. Like, I don't think you have to be particularly solid to know if you're trying to cut your calories and cut your weight, you probably don't need a can of Coke and a packet of crisps. Just... I have never thought, you know what, this is a great thing to do, to lose weight. So, Don Loche is saying that you know, people at supermarkets are trained to offer you this special offer. You know, this is terrible because some people are going to say yes to it. Like, okay, so what? Yeah. I, I think just a, a point to make here, Michael. Nearly everything I've seen the HSE put out on how to lose weight is terrible. Right. I mean, actually, we, you and I had a look through them a while ago. Not for the show, but just because I, I wanted to show them to Michael. Like their their um their estimates of how you should eat and what you should eat to lose weight, and they're very all very like they stick to all of the official guidelines, and you will almost certainly never be able to adhere to one. Also, they really love nuts for some reason. Yeah, I don't get that. Nuts, by the way, are terrible diet food for this reason. They are very high in calories and they're not terribly satiating. You want foods that are relatively low in calories, but are satiating because then you won't feel hungry and then you won't eat other things. So like potatoes are very good. Do you know, actually, funny you should mention, here's a fun fact for the listener if they're interested. The number one food for satiety is the cold potato. More satiating, apparently, than a hot potato. I don't know why. But cold potatoes score number one in the league of this of satiety foods. See, unfortunately, you have to also remember to avoid a half a pound of butter uh, if you're having a lovely new potato from Carn or somewhere in Wexford. But yes, they're far more satiety. Also, protein. I mean, we're, 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 we're used to hearing about, you know, these keto diets and all these things. But it is actually true that, I mean, my nurse was kept, kept stressing this when talking about diet. She said, but protein with every meal. Protein, protein, protein. Because protein is... Uh, scores high for satiety. In other words, 
satiety just for anybody support, what the fuck are they talking about? Satiety means makes you feel full and makes you feel full for a longer period. So at a very basic level, what we're saying is if you are eating foods that make you feel full, you will eat less because you are not hungry. And one of the things about being on a diet, <laughs> it sounds like a statement of the bleeding obvious is you want to try and avoid being hungry. And there are lots of things you can do. Tricks, as it were. I think the biggest problem with diet a lot of the time, certainly for me, isn't actually hunger. It's boredom. And also because we are designed to crave certain things, fats and sugars. Because historically, I mean, we are now, we live in a, in a, in a society at a time because of the extraordinary success of our economic system, where things that were historically difficult to get, like were fat and sugar, are very easy to get. In fact, it's maybe too easy to get. Animal proteins would have been historically very difficult to get. Now, much easier to get. So, yeah, that's a trick. That's a tricky thing to do. But, yeah, uh, you, uh, hunger, avoid hunger, number one. And that's why nuts are really bad. Because, also from my point of view, the way that nuts are nice is like if you have them roasted with salt, and that's not good. And then, of course, if you're eating a half bag of, well, you know, a couple of cans of beer, maybe a nice glass of white wine. And again, you want to avoid that. Gary, I mean, and this will bleed into what we're, we might talk about later on the other other hobby horse, most widely associated with my good self. At what point does a government think to itself, we really don't get to make these decisions for citizens. Well, I think it, it is important to point out here that this came from Donal O'Shea. The HSE has not publicly said that this is what they want to do. I'm actually, I'm just looking at the HSE's uh, daily meal plans again. Yeah. Jesus Christ, Michael. Just, you'd kill yourself. Just, it would, it would, it would make eating just an awful experience. And you just couldn't stick to it. Like, this stuff is insane. Well, you listen, now we should point out perhaps that neither of us are uh, qualified in any way, shape or form to give advice on this. And nobody should take any dietary or medical advice on the basis of what they heard in this podcast. Well, I mean, you can take the dietary advice that you will lose weight if you are eating less calories than your body is burning. I think that's reasonable, yes. Thermodynamics is generally pretty solid. It's not very helpful because knowing it's right doesn't tell you to do anything. But it's good to know. But like, here, here's something from the, one of the HSE uh, meal plans. Your afternoon snack is 25 grams of reduced fat cheese, followed by six whole grain crackers. And then you have an evening snack, Michael, of one dessert spoon of peanut butter and two thin slices of wholemeal bread. Whoa. Now, I will make a point here. Peanut butter is incredibly calorie dense. Hence why it is so popular with bodybuilders and people trying to bulk. Both of those snacks on their own are grim. 25 grams of reduced fat cheese and six crackers. You could combine both of those into something you'd actually enjoy eating and would make you feel more full. And then you're not eating a dry piece of bread with peanut butter on it. And it's just, I don't think the people who wrote these have any idea what they're doing. I'm sure they're very highly accredited. And you know, drink uh, drink at least eight cups of fluid a day, Michael. Doesn't tell you what size those cups are, so, you know, that's not important. Nor does it tell you what the actual weight of most of your food should be, nor what calories should be in it, nor what the macronutrient breakdown is, nor any of the things that would actually be useful were you trying to make a serious go at this. 
You would be better to just tell people, download my fitness pal, put stuff onto it, and then bring the total number down. Yeah, listen, my only advice to people is don't get fat. Much easier. Really, much easier. Just don't get fat. What about this, Michael? As a mid-morning snack, 200 milliliters of low-fat milk, and then grapes. Ugh. And they're giving these to people who are trying to lose weight. Like, oh, as a treat, you can have a snack of low-fat milk and grapes. Doesn't give a number on grapes, just grapes as general. When I think of a, having a, myself a glass of milk, and which I would very rarely do, the, I wouldn't combine that with some grapes. That's not to, that's not a combo that I, f- I find attractive, frankly. Oh, sadly, what I do find attractive is some grapes with a nice chunk of maybe some blue cheese and a good glass of port. But I suspect that's probably not what you should find on your diet sheet. I think the fundamental problem with these, and they all have a food pyramid on them, is they're based on the idea that you should have a set amount of servings of things from each level of the food pyramid. And that leads to creating meals that are just weird and unpalatable and kind of just don't make sense. What the people want is for us to go individually through these daily meal plans. (laughs) I really think it's not. I don't know what they want. I just guess, and occasionally, apparently, I'm right. Or I'm right enough. Well, you see the stats, I don't. We do better than you would think. Thank you. Gary, for us to do better than I think would not be difficult. We actually have a surprisingly widespread audience. Yeah, I'm sure we're doing very well in Paraguay. I don't know. I assume people tell each other about the podcast and whispers and private group chats, because it doesn't turn up on social media. Yeah, God forbid anybody would actually retweet us. I am so sick of meeting people who are TDs or senators who say to me, oh, I heard so-and-so. Yeah, an old retweet there, lads, an old Facebook post. No, no, no no chance. I I gather we're considered to be somewhere towards the other end of the centre, right? Ah, no, we're just just high-performing normies. Normies? Oh, cool. Mm. Well, you are at least. I, I'm not. <laughs> You're the balance we need in this show, Michael. So yes, anyway, back to the actual topic at hand, which was meant to be the HSE. Now, when you say meal deals, you're talking about those deals which, like, it's a sandwich, a bottle of minerals, and a packet of crisps or something, right? That meal deal? Yeah. Convenience. Right. Oh, Jesus, Really? Well, Michael, did you did you not hear Don Lachey talking about how obesity was a crippling disease? The fact, despite the fact that obesity, much like drug addiction, is not a disease. I don't. I really. I, I am too close to this issue to to get into that particular snake pit. Why have you become addicted to something recently? Well, I am obese, but you're not addicted to drugs. Uh, well, I was addicted to nicotine. Luckily, I discovered I wasn't addicted to drink, although I did drink semi-professionally in my 20s. And a lot of people said that I had it, I, I had it in me to really go all the way, but I just didn't, you know, I didn't have it. I didn't want it enough, Gary. I just didn't want it enough. And then I discovered when I, I changed where I was, I stopped drinking. I just, oh, look at that. I'm not an alcoholic. So there you go. So that was good news. But I did smoke and I was addicted to nicotine. It's a rotten thing being an addict, you know. I mean, for all, I mean, obviously all the reasons people have, but it's that that sense that you get when you realize, oh, I'm an addict, that my life is to some extent being dictated by the fact that I am now conscious I have six fags left in my, my, in my box and I'm going to want more of those. And I will spend a long time thinking, 
where can I get them? Particularly like if you're a place like if you're living in Italy and you can only get cigarettes in certain places and on Sunday a lot of those places are closed and where you live, blah, blah, blah. You suddenly be God, that's rotten. I am so far from the stoic. You're a very long way, Gary, from the stoic idea of the free man, put it that way, where one is the master of one's passions. When you're an addict, you are the slave of your passions, the slave of your base needs. And that's not a good idea, whatever it happens to be. What are you addicted to, Gary? I sure am addicted to anything. I consume unhealthy levels of several things, but that's because I want to. And I could stop at any time. Yeah, that's what the addict always says. Yeah, but I'm right about it. <laughs> that's the difference. Because mm-hmm. you're Marcus Aurelius. You could stop invading Germany anytime you wanted. What I actually find quite interesting about this, Michael, and Don Locher coming out to say it, is that Don Locher was reported in the Irish Times. I think it was 2021. He came out and said that it is uh, offensive to tell people that if they are obese and want to not be obese, they should eat less and move more. He said that obesity is a complex chronic disease for which there are a lot of different causes. And that the belief that obesity is a lifestyle choice which is due to poor self-control and lack of motivation is not really the case. And then he starts talking about genetics. Now, forgive me, Michael, if I'm, I'm, you know, if I'm putting too much pressure on people here. Go on. But given that you can lose weight if you develop self-control and motivation, that would seem to indicate that obesity is a lifestyle choice, which is due to poor self-discipline and lack of motivation. And I'd say for a lot of people, more the latter than the former. Uh, well, see, there I probably would disagree with you because from my experience is that people... Uh, I would say that most diet, pretty well every diet fails because uh, there's... Bunch lo- bunch of, of uh, research that suggests that most people who diet then uh, will eventually fail at the diet that they're on and then become fatter, even if they have lost large amounts of weight in the region. From my perspective, I would say that the big thing is, and I say this not as a joke, is that people need to avoid becoming fat. I think that once you become morbidly obese, then from the science that I have read, it suggests that there are that all sorts of complex uh, physiological, psychological, and uh, sort of hormonal chemical things happen that mean that it becomes difficult. I mean, the, the latest stat, the latest science that I've seen on it by the people who seem to, to do the most on this says that even if you're successful in dieting, that you can usually, you can successfully lose between 10 to 50% of your body weight. And after that, everything will pretty well go to cock. Now, I really don't want to spend too much time talking about this because I don't think that either of us are expert enough to talk about it reasonably or sensibly. But I do think that the, it's at the other side of it. I think it's a question of behaving in a way that you, when you start to notice yourself putting on weight, you just, that's the moment where you can stop it e- most easily. I think it becomes much, much more difficult if you allow yourself to become fat. And then say, okay, now I'll, I'll stop being fat. I think it's much easier to stop yourself being fat in the first place. And I think that is the question where people can, op- can operate with a, a degree of discipline and conscious self-choice. So standard overreach by the HSE? Well, by Donald Lachey? You see, the thing about it is, I, I don't doubt that the, these people are well-meaning. And I don't doubt that obesity as a condition whether or not you consider it a disease or not a disease is a is an increasing problem throughout the western world it is a it's the consequence of lots of things changes in lifestyle but also the economic success we have where 
we have access to consume far more calories than we ever would have done historically as a species. It's much, much easier for us to get our calories than we ever, ever before in the history of the human animal. So they want to, and it is something which is just really bad for you and has all sorts of negative consequences. So they want to find a way of dealing with it. But within a, within a democracy, and if we want to be serious about being a democracy, there has to be a question at some point where you have, you can, you can legitimately ask, and I'm not a libertarian, but you can legitimately ask, is this the business of government? At what point can the government not make good decisions on your behalf? Gary, even allowing that everything they said was true, everything they knew was accurate, and the science was never going to change, and in a 100 years' time, all of the science that they now currently believe about diet and nutrition was right, and that's almost certainly not true, nor near being true, is it legitimate for the government to intervene and say, we are now going to make you behave in a set way because it's good for you? It depends. One, do you think the government should do that? And two, should they engage in this sort of nudge tactic where we'll make it illegal to do that so it reduces the convenience or likelihood you'll do it and therefore, you know, we're not stopping you from doing it. We're just reorganising things to make it a bit more difficult. And O'Shea came out... I'm not sure if it was last year or a couple of years ago, and suggested that we introduce plain packaging for sweets. So it's the same, it's the same sort of thing. There's another side to this as well. I mean, there's there's, there's the in the in bit and the out bit. Even allowing, and I don't want to allow. Okay, we'll say they can do this and they should do blah blah. Surely all of this has to be based on the fact that what they're doing while they limit our choices and our liberties as adult human beings, citizens, whatever, that what they're going to do actually works, that it achieves the target that they set out to achieve. And again and again, when we look at these programs, Gary, there is no evidence that they actually do what they are supposed to do. We have talked before here, and we don't want to bore the listeners who have stuck with us this long, but... We've talked, I've talked before about, we've written about issues like, say, sugar taxes, uh, soda taxes. There are now two studies, two that have been done, one in Cornell, one I can't remember where, it was two, double university study, I think in the United States also, which maybe one was England, I can't remember. Anyway, now two studies. Uh, one recently came out, which I, I noticed because it actually agreed to a, a study which we referenced a couple of years ago from Cornell, which showed that one of the consequences in areas where they had put on soda taxes was an increase in beer consumption. Now, it is my suspicion, Gary, that that was not the intended consequence of putting taxes on sugar-containing soft drinks, was to make people drink more beer. Secondly, the amount of the decline in the consumption of of sugar was at the beginning small and then disappeared when you went two, three, four years down the line with the studies. Whatever benefit had accrued initially had disappeared. So you had increased taxes, you'd interfered in people's individual liberty, and you hadn't got what you wanted to get from the thing. Now, on that basis, if no other basis, then stop doing it. Mm, there is a uh, there is a relevant Edmund Burke quote here, I think, and it's... Uh... Society cannot exist unless a controlling power upon will and appetite be placed somewhere, and the less fit there is within, the more there must be without. Well, in this instance, you know, obesity is apparently an epidemic, and it could be solved by people, you know, not doing that. 
but they haven't. So now the government is like, well, maybe we've got to ban the order that food can be sold. But will that do it? Will that affect obesity? Where's Where are the studies that show that this will work? If you could do like a complex reordering of society, you could probably have some impact. But you can't. You can only pick at certain things. And ultimately, I think, yes, as things are generally set in like modern culture, at least in Ireland, if you do not look at what you're doing, you will become overweight because it is so easy to eat more than you should. But it's also relatively easy not to do that. Also, there are the, I mean, if they want to do things like this, then they should make everybody stand outside their door in the morning at, and do calisthenics for half an hour. Or, you know, people should get really into fitness. And one of the things they don't tell you about fitness, Michael, is that, uh, you know, if you get fit, you'll feel really good. What I have found from the last while is, no, if you get fit, you'll feel shattered constantly. <laughs> and you will struggle to lift your arms above your shoulders. Yeah, well, you'll do that. But I think you also get, I mean, I, I remember back in the days when I used to be a gym bunny, that when I would leave the gym and I would be there for quite a long time, by the time I had done all my ablutions and I'd been to the sauna and I'd been to the steam room and the plunge pool and I'd got over the experience of doing my cardio and my weights and whatever, I'd sit into my car to drive home and I would think, God, I feel like I'd go back in and do another hour and a half. And then generally speaking, I would have sense and say, no, I think I'll go home and have my tea. But no, I used to feel great. Okay, let's, shall we, if we, can we move on to drink? Yes, so you are very irate about the alcohol action people. What have they done this time? Because I haven't heard this interview. I heard uh, I heard a, a bit of an interview. I don't know. I, I heard most of it. To be honest, I reached a point where I said, oh, I can't be doing with this. And I turned it off and put on my Simon and Garfunkel CD. We had, there was a lady on and she was talking to somebody on the radio and she was talking about alcohol and you know, it was you know, all the terrible things it does to society. And, and the great success, and there have been people talking apparently widely about, you know, the decline and, and the decline in alcohol as a, resu- as a result of advocacy. Advocacy, Gary, has result. And uh, minimum unit alcohol pricing. Now, that's a miracle to me since minimum unit alcohol pricing has, ha- was introduced at the beginning of this year. We actually don't have any stats, really on what the effect has been. We don't know what the effect We have very few stats on Scotland. They did it years ago. But the fact is, we've seen, and God knows I've said this a million times, we have seen a decline in Ireland in alcohol consumption continuously since 2001. So any decline that takes place, this, we between 2019 and 2021, we saw 10%, 9 10%, 10% decline in alcohol consumption in this country. We saw a massive decline over the period of the lockdown, even though we saw headlines talking about the country being covered in a tidal wave of wine. We drank slightly more wine than we had done before, but we drank less beer and, f- and fewer uh, uh, spirits. But there you go. We, we, I, sh- I heard the, one of the statements, oh, well, young people, it's great. Young people are not binging as much. They're not drinking as much because they have so many more options. I want someone to tell me, Gary, what options does somebody living in South Dublin have today as a young person that you didn't have 10 or 15 years ago? What are all these new options that people have that to do with them? You know, people are young people are drinking less, they're drinking later, they're binging less, they're taking less drugs, they're having less sex, Gary. But you know why? When you actually talk, you talk to people who are in this business or talking to young people, and why they don't do these things? Crippling anxiety. Crippling anxiety. It's not a good story. 
also there are other issues like for example alcohol is now perceived as being a carbohydrate and a sugar and so if you're having your cap and coke you have your cap and coke with a diet coke because uh, you might have the odd cap but you're, you're certainly not going to have sugar in your coke because the great terrible thing if you're having if you're sculpting your body obsessively in the gym and we've gone from arms to pecs to to, to abs and now we're finally hitting hitting legs in the last couple of years so we've got there we've got the whole thing and they're sculpting their bodies and they're the reason they're not drinking is because alcohol is sugar we also have if you're like in the GAA if you're in any way involved in serious sport in the GAA it's incredibly anti-alcohol nobody can have a drink nobody can go near a pub you're seen in a pub unless you're taking a photograph with a glass of water or a cup of coffee and you've got seven witnesses to then you're off the team it's just the idea that this is somehow as a result of advocacy and because people it's just nonsense and then we had one comment that really just pissed me off there was a reference to the fact that we had some years ago a change was made say uh, if you remember to the opening hours of off licenses and it were brought back to 10 o'clock right and the comment on this lady was she said i can't imagine why anybody would want to why would they want uh, to drop, to buy alcohol after 10 o'clock anyway? And that is that it? Is that the level that we have now arrived at in the country where public policy about what adult citizens, because everybody who buys alcohol legally is an adult citizen, is now what they're going to be allowed to do is going to be based on what the imagination of somebody representing the anti-alcohol advocacy groups in Ireland has decided. At the time, one of our, our regular listeners, my friend Mortis, actually spoke at some trade union bash about this he was enraged because i think at the time he was working wherever he was working i think at the time he was working homeless him so you know very socially engaged positive thing to do he was working and he would get in his bike and he'd go home and he'd pop in and get a couple of cans on his way home could no longer do this and as he said that this middle class privileged bourgeois notion that forgets that there are people who work late at jobs, who work on shift work, and for whom the idea that a, a, the shop might be open till 11 o'clock at night so he can buy a couple of cans to bring home with him to have with his Chinese. No, no, no. I couldn't, you can't imagine that, Gary. Why? Oh, God. Why would anybody want... If they want to drink, why can't they just go into the cellar and get a bottle out of whatever you laid down when you went to the O'Brien's French wine sale last week? Christ, really? Who are these people? And these are the people making laws. And yet they will claim, they will claim, I'm certain they will claim that whatever decline we see in whatever particular metric they choose will be put down to MUP and there won't be a scrap of empirical evidence to support that, that is actually the case. But that will be used in order to demonstrate that it's working. And if it turns out next year or the year after that it hasn't worked quite as quickly, then the reason will be because they didn't do enough of it. So are you saying that the numbers aren't real and don't matter? I'm saying the numbers are real, but they have nothing to do with what they're saying they have to do with. I think we're, we are seeing a perennial secular drop in alcohol consumption all across the Western world. But we're seeing quite a dramatic one in Ireland. It is also true that we, have, we saw a considerable rise in alcohol consumption. Once upon a time, Ireland had one of the lowest levels of alcohol consumption in the OECD. We went into a binge in the 90s. We all partied, Michael. We all, well... I certainly did. I wasn't in Ireland when I was doing it, but I certainly did. But since 2001, that has been in decline, and there's no reason that I can see to suggest that that decline is not going to continue. But that's nothing. I don't see a scrap of evidence that suggests that this has anything to do with advocacy. Really, it's, it, 
all sorts of reasons. But yet, the notion that you can connect this and what they're doing with affecting the behavior of people who are either alcoholics or abusive drinkers is offensive to me. All the stu- well, all the studies. The studies that I've seen, the, st- the strong implication is those people who are most price sensitive are the people who are social, moderate drinkers. And those people who are not, who are price sensitive, it, yes, they may drink less, Gary, but they'll go off and they'll find something else. Because people are not static, passive receivers of policy. They are dynamic, entrepreneurial creatures. When they stop drinking the cheap beer, what did students do? They went they started drinking cheap spirits, which was absolutely not the health outcome that people wanted to see. And if they stop drinking, if they stop them drinking alcohol, Gary, do you know what they will do? They will find some other method of changing their consciousness. And that may be something which we would like even less. Yeah. Yeah. Student activists are already annoying. We don't need them doing LSD. They'll be unbearable. Can you imagine a bunch of student activists on amphetamines or amphetamine speed and coke? Michael, I I don't need to imagine it. I've seen it. (laughs) Anyway, you were talking, you said something about uh, there was a a report. Yes, we will will touch briefly on this because despite the fact I... I'm not quite sure why people think this. People seem to enjoy me going through reports. Oh, we all do. Yeah, yeah. People need to get better hobbies, Mike. They do. Carpentry, I'm told, can be a really good one. Woodwork. I, I don't get it, but I, I suppose why not? Give the people what they want, Michael. Long descriptions of HE or HSE meal plans and reviews of academic reports. Watercolour painting, I'm told, can be very soothing. There's a group called the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. It's a think tank. It is dedicated to, in their words, reversing the rising tide of popularization, or sorry, of polarization, extremism, and disinformation worldwide. They were called in to do a training session for the Houses of the Oireachtas on fighting fake news. It was not a very popular training session from the videos I have seen for it. So basically they went in and gave... What is honestly, Michael, one of the most boring presentations I've ever watched. It's about an hour long. And it's about what is misinformation, what is disinformation. And then it's mostly uh, about stuff linked to the far right. Okay. It is the standard sort of stuff you would expect from ex-storyful employees. So there were a number of stats in it. One of the interesting stats was about detransition. Now, detransition is when someone who is transgender changes back. So somebody who transitioned from male to female then transitions back to being male. Yeah, they have now detransitioned. Now, the ISD told the houses of the Oireachtas that only 1-2% to of transgender people detransition and that any claim to the other is false. Any data that is around on this subject shows the rates are very low, 1-2%. to No evidence that high numbers of people are detransitioning. I will link to the to the article I did in it, which goes through the stats. But suffice it to say that even the Wikipedia page on detransition links to a survey or a study which says the rate could be as high as 8%, which, Michael, is eight times to, well, four to eight times greater than they said any study had shown. But suffice to say on this, and I, I mentioned it in the article, there are estimates of um, the amount of transgender people who detransition that are into double figures. So 1-2% to is, is not anywhere around being right. The purpose behind this article was primarily to point out that these people had made a mistake. Given that their job, or well, where they're positioning themselves, 
is as a group who can inform governments about what is true and what is not. But these groups themselves have really no oversight. I mean, the, the IST has a lot of people involved with it and a lot of people putting money into it. But they're not subject to FOI. They have no requirement to deal with the press. It's basically impossible to tell what's going on inside it unless you actually have someone inside it. So you can't tell if they are going to bias the results in some way or another. Now, they may not do that. But as I mentioned in the piece, Michael, traditionally power without oversight has led to fairly predictable results. It's a problem, I would say, that exists not just in Ireland, but certainly does exist in Ireland, where we have in this area, not just in this area, and we have groups that are in a position of privilege when it comes to giving advice to government and to other important institutions regarding the care of individuals in the state that are treated as if they were expert groups and when they are, in fact, advocacy groups. And I think that if it was more explicitly known and stated that this group is not an expert group but an advocacy group, then people would be in a better position to make an estimate about to what degree they want to place their faith and trust in the advice that these groups are giving. And I don't know the group you're talking about, this particular group, so I'm not, I'm not suggesting they are, in fact, an advocacy group. I don't know. I don't know anything about them. I'm not in a position to make a judgment about them. The One of the two members of staff... Now, I didn't give the names of the members of staff who gave the presentation, even though I know them, primarily as a courtesy. The member of staff who said that there were no surveys or no studies that showed anything above that, they have a master's degree in journalism, they worked for Storyful for four years, and then they moved as an analyst to the ISD. That is their qualification. Right. right. In general, the ISD staff I have seen talking, I have not found terribly impressive. And in numerous cases, they've been people where I've looked at them, and they have very clear political views. Now, they may or may not have any impact on their work, but they're the sort of things that immediately make you think, I wonder to what extent this is influencing you. Yeah, because one of the unfortunate things is this particular issue, and amongst others, has been politicised in a way which is really unhelpful. And I don't say that's not just on the progressive side, but I would say that's true on the right also, that this has become one of those football issues where we support one side and we support the other side because that's part of the cultural milieu that we belong to. And when you're talking about something which is as serious as this and the potential impacts that it will have on people's lives and young people, uh, that's a very bad way to go about doing your business. I mean, it's a bit a bit late in the day, you know, it's a bit closing the doors and maybe a bit naive to say that we really should try and leave these things more to people who are genuinely experts in the field. I'm talking about medical doctors, I'm talking about endocrinologists, I'm talking about psychologists and psychiatrists with expertise in uh, pediatric and uh, teenage development and sexuality, whatever it happens to be. But certainly endocrinology, I think, would be a good one to start with. And then we should go about doing some proper empirical studies. And we know that this is an area where, if you read any of the people who are serious about it, say that it's incredibly difficult historically to do any kind of long-term studies because, one, that historically this has been a very little study area because the numbers of people involved has been very small and very hard to do longitudinal studies because of the dropout rate and the failure and the number of people in these who undergo treatment who simply lose completely lose contact with the people that they were previously involved with. 
there's been relatively limited research on detransitioners and how they behave. But the research I have seen, and I go into some of it in the piece, is that the vast majority of detransitioners break off all contact with the clinicians who oversaw their uh, their initial transition to whatever stage they went to. And that's not really surprising because a very high percentage of them report that they felt they were not uh, adequately briefed on the procedures or the side effects they might undergo or things of that nature. Yes. So a lot of them feel betrayed effectively. And so they cut off contact. And then you start running into an issue where those people are then no longer available for research. So you find this really interesting split in the research. When you look at how many people detransition, you get estimates from 1% to 2% all the way up to, you know, 15%, that kind of area. When you look at uh, the study done on how many people have transitioned and regret it, you get like 0 to 2% results. And it's only when you look into the methodology of these studies, and most of them are quite small, but not all of them, that you realize they really only use uh, people who are actively engaged with the with certain clinics. And so you have this, this massing, this missing amount of people who just aren't being caught in a lot of the research. It's hard to figure out how exactly you get around that because these people seem to want nothing to do with you. So how do you measure what they think? Also then, regret is a very subjective thing. You can have a terrible experience and not regret it. Absolutely. Uh, that's a whole different kettle of fish there. Well, uh, issues regarding about, shall we say... Improved life experience, improved improved outcomes, in, in, and the metrics that you use to measure them that raises that's a whole other issue. You, you are dealing with self reporting here, and I imagine I have to imagine that making the choice to transition from one sex to the other, and all that that entails, is a massive investment, and that psychically, it you know, you don't want to regret that, do you? Because I don't know. Unless, and I think that has been, the, when you listen to the accounts of people who have detransitioned, unless you, you, you end up with a sense, a deep sense of anger and betrayal, the sense that the people that you felt should have been looking out for you weren't, that should have been telling you what the possible consequences were, didn't, and didn't really give you the full understanding of what you're going to go through. Um, it's, oh, it's a mess, Gary. It's all a mess. So I, I, I suppose just to, to get back to this, the nature of groups like this means that if they are biased, let's say they have particular views on the transgender issue, and they decide to only think that certain studies are worth mentioning, there's basically no way to figure out they've done that. Because, as I said, this was a private uh, event. We just got the recording for it. Yeah. But I suspect a lot of their work is private. And how do you know if these people who are meeting with staff in, in the houses of the Oireachtas are presumably meeting with TDs as well, and will be known to TDs, and are briefing them on these things, how do you know if anything they're briefing them on is actually accurate? And I think ultimately you don't. And yet they, there has been a push amongst particularly civic organisations to give uh, you know, fact-checking organisations and organisations like the ISD a degree of prestige and recognition of expertise that, to be honest, the groups have never really demonstrated. Most of the time when I read reports from groups like this, about like far-right violence or things like that. The predominant sense I get is that these people really don't understand the groups they're studying. Like they don't understand um, how these groups think. They don't understand the humour of these groups because a lot of them place a large emphasis on humour. And I've seen things that I know 
are absolutely jokes treated as serious political statements multiple times in reports that certainly cost tens if not or tens of thousands if not more because these people don't know anything about the groups but they're writing reports for people who also don't know anything about the groups so no one has any idea what's real also there is a phenomenon where you get shall we say heritage groups which carry with them a historical baggage of respectability but end up becoming captured I suppose a group that would be well-known and controversial in the United States would be something like, say, the Southern Southern Poverty Law Centre. Now, the Southern Poverty Law Centre has identified a number of individuals and a number of groups as being uh, white supremacist or hate groups, uh, where designation would be vigorously contested, both by the individuals and the groups, but also by other people who, shall we say, occupy that space on the the moderate right or the centre-right in the United States. But it depends on how you want to go. How you get to frame the definitions will obviously produce the results. And if you want to produce a certain kind of result because you dislike somebody, Charles Murray, for example. Now, you can have your own opinions about Charles Murray, but I mean, someone like uh, Thomas Sowell or um, Putnam, what's it, Charles Putnam? Robert. I mean, Robert Putnam. Robert Putnam isn't going to sit down and have a conversation as, about, about the works of Charles Murray uh, and his own work. If he sits, if he thinks that uh, Charles Murray is a white supremacist and a hate monger, but Charles Murray is a target of people like, say, the Southern, o- Southern Poverty Law Center, that kind of thing, you know. When, but it has that historical respectability that it carries with it from the past. So, and we also live in the age of experts. I mean, we've mentioned before that book that uh, uh, you recommended to me, and I've been reading, and some of our friends have been reading, "Ruling the Void." This is one of the one of the characteristics that we see in Western democracies, which Mayor is highly critical of, is the, the depoliticization of politics, if you like, and the creation of a stakeholder influence and the expert. We now we worship, but you know, geez, Gary, you and I, you know, you know, you better than me. What expert you choose is going to be so important when it comes to taking expert advice. And that choice is rarely an impartial or disinterested one. We will see. We will see what happens with these groups. I have a feeling they will just become more influential because they do work that, uh, well, to be honest, the civil service has never really got a handle on how to do, even though ultimately most of the work that I've seen produced by them so far is not very technical. Gary, it's all part of this ghastly thing which people say well we follow the science people say well you have to look at the science as if the science like there's one science there's one opinion there's one settled idea that's it the science you produce one scientist to say well that's the science it is one of the most tedious and one of the most politically dangerous things of our current dispensation but that is that's the world we live in and politicians are terrified to put their heads above the parapets to be seen to be anti-science Hmm. I think we will leave it at at that, Michael. This has wandered on long enough. Let the people back out into the wild. We will be back next Sunday, I believe. Barring it randomly being a bank holiday again. All the best.